So we are going through a series called Shine, and uh, we're going through the book of First Peter. Again, I want to encourage you, if you do not have a reading plan that you're tracking through the Bible, this is a good place to start, because we're talking about it every Sunday, and you can follow along and read. Okay? Uh, so uh, we're talking about Shine, and that's why we have the light right here to remind us that, just like what Kevin shared earlier, that as we go on Halloween, not just Halloween, every single day that we can be light of the world. If you remember Jesus said he's the light of the world, but later on he said we as Christians are also called to be the light of the world. Okay, so today we're going to uh, go through 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and actually it's 2-3. I lied to Kevin earlier. It's not 2-4. We'll pick up 2-4 next week. Uh, but I want to start off with a quote that one of my favorite quotes, and probably may not be familiar to many of you, unless maybe you're in management or business. Um, there is this person named Peter Drucker. He is credited to be the father of man, modern management. So he's great at, at starting businesses and helping business leaders to start. Uh, I want to start there because he has a quote that says, Culture eats bre- uh, strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What did, he, what did he mean by that? What he meant is that no matter how great your strategy might be, if you don't have a culture to support that strategy, it will basically become nothing. So let me give you an example. For example, you have a great strategy to study. Earlier, our junior high boys all shared their struggles with getting work done. So let's say this great strategy, you're like, I'm going to write down every day what I'm going to do, uh, what day I'm going to study, what time I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to ask people to call me to do it. But that's a great strategy, thinking that if I just do those things, I will get my work done. But even with that great strategy, without a culture of being hardworking and disciplined, none of that would matter. Culture will always eat strategy for breakfast. Let's say you're losing weight. You're, you're like me. You're losing weight. You're trying to eat healthier. You have this great plan. You sign up for uh, whatever uh, diet plan out there. You sign up to work at LA Fitness. You even ask your friends to come pick you up to go work at, and, 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 and at LA Fitness. You have a great strategy, but then the culture of your life is one of laziness and lack of self-control. That culture will always eat your strategy for breakfast, that you will not lose weight. You can have the greatest thing on schedule, a strategy, but the culture of your life does not, if it's not consistent with that strategy, it will kill that strategy. And I think it's the same thing is true with us as Christians. Because I believe the Bible tells us, the Bible gives us a strategy to reach the world for Christ. The problem is not so much that we don't have a strategy. The problem is we don't have the culture that will help us to carry that strategy. Anyway, you're wondering what kind of culture do we need? And as I look at Scripture and what we will see in today's text particularly, but if you look at the life of Jesus, the culture that Jesus established on earth was not bigger building, was not better music, was not more fancy lights. The culture that Jesus established in his short lives here on earth was a culture of love. Now, we have a strategy to reach the ends of the earth. We have the gospel presented. We have all sorts of tools to share the gospel. But that strategy of reaching the world for Christ will mean nothing if we do not have the culture of love. Which is the reason why the Apostle Paul said uh, the greatest of all is what? Love. But the problem is for many of us, even as Christians, our idea of love is just as muddled as the idea of love in this world. So that culture, lack of culture of love, is eating the strategy of reaching out the world for breakfast. 
And so that's what Peter is going to tell us today, that we must love one another. I kind of let the, let the, the ending comes out already for First Peter when I introduce it, that Peter wants us to shine for Jesus. No doubt about that. But you know what I found really interesting? Is that Peter did not come right out in the first, uh, first part of the letter and say, go shine for Jesus. It almost, he almost waited halfway through the book. Then he started talking about shining, this idea of light. And I wonder why that is, right? And I think the, the reason why that is is because it's not so important that we focus on shining. I think Peter understood that we need to have the culture to support that shining. Now, last week we talked about holiness, that we need to have a culture of holiness before God. Now, we need to be holy not because we need holy for you or for other people to see. I need to be holy because I need to be holy before God. God alone is holy. So now I need to be holy. And as Paul, uh, Peter moved out of that uh, culture of holiness, now today when we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he's going to remind us that we need to live, cultivate a, foster a culture of love. Loving one another. You have your Bible with you. Hopefully you're turned there already. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, we're going to pick out the passage. Now, last week we talked about our relationship with God, a vertical relationship. Me and God need to be holy. I need to be holy before God. But today, Peter is going to move us to a horizontal relationship, me and other people, particularly those of us in the church, me and other believers. That vertical relationship ought to lead to love toward one another in a horizontal relationship. Here's what Peter tells us. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. From the get-go, just like last week, we saw what, I call, what, we, what we know in gra- English grammar or language grammar is indicative. Indicative is what is described about you. What does it tell us about us? It says that we as believers have been purified in our souls. That's the indicative about you, about me. As we put our faith in Christ, we've been washed, we've been purified, we've been cleansed. And just like last week, though, when we talk about indicative, almost every indicative about who we are in Christ always comes with an imperative. An imperative. And that imperative is to love one another. But I want to kind of zoom in. What is the purpose of us being purified? If I were to ask any of you who are believers, why were you saved? I believe your first answer is going to be so that I can have eternal life in Christ. So that I can be with God forever. And that would not be a wrong answer. In fact, I was very right. Or some of you who are more mature, spiritually mature, you may be like, my being saved by God is for the glory of God. That God will be glorified. And again, that would be a perfectly right answer. But I would argue for us that would be an incomplete answer. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 tells us this. The purpose is for something else as well. By the way, a tip for reading the Bible, prepositions are going to be your, your, your helper, your guide. Every time you see preposition like for, with, who, therefore, uh, uh, so that that type of uh, preposition will help you to understand the passage. Because if you look back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it tells us that who we are, having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth, here's the key word, for what? For a sincere brotherly love. Here's the purpose for you being saved. One of the purpose for you being saved is to love 
other people. Let me put it another way. Your purpose of being sick is to be part of God's family. Your being sick is part of God's kingdom of believers. You are in a community. You are saved to be in the community of believers of faith. I think a lot of times we think back uh, the other way around. We think that community is a byproduct of my faith. Meaning that when I put my faith in Christ and, well, God needs to help us to grow, so maybe um, that he will give us the church so that individually we can kind of grow something out of the church, learn something from the church, and help support one another. You see, our community, our our identity as a family is not a byproduct of our faith. It is the purpose of our faith. Peter said, your soul being cleansed, saved, as you agreed and you profess your faith in the truth of the gospel, for what purpose? For, for one purpose is this, so that we can be believers in Christ. We can be family for Christ. We can be Christ's bride. And unfortunately, this is such a hard idea for, for us because many of us live very, very individualistic life. Imagine you are safe for other people. That is not a theology that, that a thinking that most of us buy into. When I'm safe, I'm safe for me. When I'm safe, God is for God. But God is saying this, through Peter, is saying that you are safe for other people. We live, instead of for other people, we live for ourselves. Think with me, with me for a second. For many of us, things are done for us. Right? Those of you who are younger, your parents get you a uh, tutor for who? For you. Get you a piano teacher for who? For you. Your parents drive you around for who? For you. Your parents pay for your expensive hobby for who? For you. Everything about our lives is about us many times. And I don't think that the parents should not provide for the kids. But we've been grown up in a world that says everything is about us and is for us. And unfortunately, sometimes we bring that to the church. Guess what? When we come to church, we're believers. That church is for me. Feed me. Teach me. Make me happy. Give me a job to do so I can feel significant. Find me a role to play so that I can, I can have a purpose. Everything is about me. Teach me. Help me. But don't teach me so hard and discipline me. Teach me just enough so I feel good about myself. That's how we live our Christian life, but yet it's exactly opposite of what Peter is saying. You are saved for God and for his community, for his family. That is who you are. That's what you're saved for. That is the very purpose of your salvation, one of the purposes for your salvation, certainly for God, for his glory, certainly for your salvation, eternal life. But more than that, there is a third piece that involves us as a church. And that type of love is not about a Sunday event. That type of love cannot be about just coming to Awana, sitting there, or sitting here on Sunday, going to a small group. You see, that indicative about who we are comes with an imperative, because quickly after that, uh, Peter says this, that as God, as having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the command, here's the imperative, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because you're made for one another. Because I'm made for your good, for your loving you. The natural command is to love one another. But here's the thing. I want you to pay attention to the intensity of the word that Peter is using to describe that love. 
1 Peter 1, 22, it says that love is a sincere love, a genuine love. It is a brotherly love that I am seeing you as like my real sister, my real uncle, my real aunt, my real brother. So you are seeing each other just like you would see your family. Do you know you have anything in common with your family aside from the fact that you were born into your family? Nothing. But I think the same thing is true when Peter said we've been born with imperishable seed. He's talking about we've been born again into this new life. There's nothing common about us at all. The only thing that links us as believers in Christ is because we're blood-related, Jesus' blood-related. And as such, we need to love each other genuinely. I love the, uh, uh, I think NIV, it says love one another earnestly. Like it is not a superficial, hi, how are you doing, and keep walking type of love. It is the type of love that you're willing to get messy. You know you're going to get yelled at when you speak up into that person's life. It is the love that you saw someone not doing well and you actually pick up the phone uh, to text or to call. Uh, if it's really serious, you call. If it's not serious, you just text, right? Um, to talk to them and see how they're doing. It is the type of love that you're willing to kick your car key and lend it to someone to use because they, their car broke down. He is the type of love you're willing to lend money to because that person is running out of money and struggling financially. See, this love is not just, hey, how are you doing? It's not just, hey, I show up once a week, pay my due. The type of love Peter is talking about is from the heart that we really see each other as family because guess what? We are family. We are part of the family of God. And, Paul, and Peter tells us that we need to love one another that way. And as if that's not enough, Peter 1 on verse, chapter 2, verse 1, give us the negative of that love. Here's what he says. He says, verse 1, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter said, don't, if you're, if you're like me when I read verses like that, particularly in the, in the, Paul, in Paul, in the Paul's uh, the, uh, epistles of Paul, letters of Paul, when you run through a list like that, the first thing I do is I just skip all of that. And in your head, you're like, oh, all negative stuff. As if that lump it all together. I actually want to take the time to at least give you some definition of what these are. You know what malice is? Malice is wanting something bad happen to another person. Deceit is saying something not true about somebody. Hypocrisy is hiding something that is true about you and showing somebody else that is not real. Envy is resenting someone for what they have and what you don't have. Slander is saying something bad and not true about another person. That is not love. See, love is having people's best interests in mind, even putting them above ourselves. I like how C.S. Lewis said it in, in, as far as humility is concerned. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking yourself less. You're not losing any value as a person. You're not loving people. That means you don't love yourself. You are loving other people when you put them above your own need and love them like family. Like them, love them because you are family. And Peter said these things that we do, and I wonder how many of us ever have malice toward people here. And the word there is not some malice, a few malice, a few slander, a little bit of it. It says all, all, all. You know what the word says in, in Greek, in the word all is? What it means? It means all. It's very profound. 
So every thought that we have, what we do to the people around, that's what Peter is telling. We need to be better than that because we've been loved by God. We've been saved for one another. And I wonder what Peter thought of when he wrote this. Or think about it. This is the guy who spent time with Jesus for three years. If anyone knows love, I bet Peter knows love. Like I thought back to when Peter first got called by Jesus to follow him. He dropped his net. Guess what? He started living with Jesus. Jesus gave him a place to say, Jesus started working with him. Jesus started teaching them. But I think the culmination of God's love for him, Jesus' love for them, for him and the disciples, happens after resurrection. Or one of the most infamous things that Peter had done that we know of Peter is what? He denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Like Jesus had every right to deny him back. After resurrection, right? Like if Jesus is, at any, obviously Jesus is not, but if he's any way like me, I'm like, forget this guy. He turned on me three, not, one, not twice, three times. I can't find better disciples somewhere else. And yet in John chapter 21, you know what Jesus did? Jesus cooked breakfast. Jesus restored Peter. Jesus never put put the finger down what I would like to do to my kids and say, what's wrong with you, Peter? How could you do this to me? I'm your Lord. You know what Jesus did? Jesus simply asked him one question three times. Do you love me? And Jesus did not condemn him. Jesus restored him, brought him back. That's what genuine Love is. Loving earnestly from the heart is acceptance, is, is embracing, is, is forgiving. That is the type of love that Peter is getting. And I wonder when he was writing this, he's probably feel, going back, running through his mind, the type of love that he has received from God. And now knowing that that's the love that he needs to show to every other believers around him. See, this type of love is what we need in this world. This is the type of love that is what we need in this world. I know this type of love works in this world because it worked over 2,000 years ago. I won't turn there. I know it's on the screen. In Acts chapter 2, this type of love worked for the, the early church because the early church continued to grow, not because they have a bigger building, not because they have a high-depth 4D, uh, whatever, 4K TV. They didn't get bigger and grow because they have a dynamic speaker. Jesus wasn't even there. But they grew. Why? Because they have a culture of loving one another. Acts chapter 2. I want you to pay attention to uh, the, the word common together. Acts chapter 2, the early church. How did they grow? How did they make a difference in the world? It says this, all who believed were together and have all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, belonging, and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with who? All the people. And as a result of that culture of love, the Lord added to their number day by day by day those who were saved. See, that type of culture of love is what we need in this church. And I wonder if a culture of love is a smell. When people walk in this room, what do they smell among us? I, I, I get real personal. Think about the people you're sitting around here. Think about the week before, the people sitting around you. 
Think about it one more time. The week before that, the people were sitting around you. See, God calls us to love, not just love those who are around the same with us, the same age, with the same life stage, but God calls us to love what we are made to love one another. We need that culture of love in our church if we're to make a difference for the world. We need that culture in our love, uh, culture of love in our family, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace, in order to change the world for Christ, in order to shine in a world of darkness. So then the question is, how do we do that? How do we get love? How do we foster a culture of love? Peter's going to give it an answer which is really odd. At least for me, it's not the first thing I think of when I think about loving one another. Because if you go back to 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, Peter tells us the way to learn to love is actually through the word of Christ. It's actually through the word. It's actually through the Bible. What do, what do I mean by that? Look at verse uh, 23. Here's what it says. After he commanded us love one another earnestly from a pure heart, in verse 23 says, Since you have been born again are indicative, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You know how Paul, ah, sorry, how Peter encouraged us to grow in love? He pointed us back to the living and abiding word of God. The living, abiding word of God. And he gave us some clue. What is that word? That word really is the good news. The gospel, the whole Bible is about the gospel of Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus dying for sinners like me and, me and you. The whole point of, of, of us believing in the first place when we obey to the truth, when we put our faith in Christ, what we're really doing is, if you don't know, hopefully you know by now, is that you are believing what was said about Jesus and what would happen when you put your faith in Jesus. The whole book of the Bible is not, like I said last week, a rule book to follow, but really a love letter to show that this loving God who pursues the most wayward person, me, through his prophecy, through the examples of the, of the Israelites, and how at the appointed time, the fullness of time, he sent his own son to die on a cross for you and I. That's what the Bible is about. And by trusting in him, we have eternal life. And when we want to love one another more, the first thing that we do is not trying to be around people more. If being around people more is going to make you love people more, try and go on vacation with your family. Go a longer trip. You know that doesn't work. Three days in, guess what happened? My mom is yelling at me. I'm yelling at my mom. My kids are yelling at me. Go on a road trip. You know spending time with more one than another does not help you to love one another more. In fact, it may turn you away from them, hate them more. So being around one another doesn't help. Trying to love people with your own effort doesn't help. You know why? Because we all have a button in the back of our head. Maybe for some of you, maybe you don't like people touching your things. You can be very loving until they start touching your things. Right? You have siblings, you know what I'm talking about. They put one step in the room, and... Eh, Maybe some of you, timeliness is a big deal. For me, timeliness is a very big deal. So don't be late when you meet with me, okay? That really drives me crazy. That's my button. For some of you, maybe, maybe 
Whatever that thing that you own and you're unwilling to let other people borrow it. And people keep asking you to borrow those things. Every one of us has a button to push, and guess what? We're all sinners. We like to push buttons. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it accidentally. And when a person hits that button on us, guess what? And my love quotient is enough. I'm just going to blow up at you. I'm just going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes to revenge against you. See, that doesn't work either. Loving others does not, it does not happen by just learning about loving on its own. Information doesn't make you love people more. And what Peter is saying is this transformation by the word of God is the only way to make you love people more. You need to get back to the gospel. You need to get back to the word of God and be reminded that you were someone who was wayward toward God. And now he brought you back to life because of his love for you. That's the only way it works. And, and by the way, for many of us, that word is true. We believe it in it. But it was a dead word. What I mean by that is this, we believe it in the past, but we actually don't believe the word of God still is living and abiding in me today. Yes, I believe in the gospel when I was young, when I was five years old, when I was ten years old. That word worked to bring me salvation, but in reality, we don't believe the word of God today still works in your life and my life. Peter said it is a living, abiding word of God. That the word of God that worked in the past continues to work today because that is the word that will help us to grow. You go back to, go down to verse 2 in chapter 2. Here's what it says. Like newborn infants, like newborn babies. Peter gives us this picture. Long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. See, if you have tasted the Lord is good, if you have salvation, you know that you're trusting Jesus, you have believed in the word of God. Don't forget that the word of God that brought you into the family of God is the word that helps you grow. The living, abiding word of God is the only way for us to grow in our salvation. I realize that many of you do not have babies, have not had babies. That's a good thing. Uh, for some of us who have had or you've hang out with uh, babies before, particularly newborn babies, this is a very vivid picture. You go to a, 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 a newborn baby just born the, uh, the day of. There's nothing that the baby uh, – drinking milk is a third of what the, that baby can do. The other two is this. They sleep, they drink milk, and they poop. And then you wash, rinse, and recycle. Drink milk, poop, sleep. And they do it every three hours. And if you're like terrible like my kids, they do it every two and a half hours, sometimes two hours. So you know what happened is, as a parent, and, uh, and particularly hard for, for Hannah, since she, she, she did most of the feeding, is every two and a half hours, two hours, you got to plug the, the bottle into the baby, or you have to breastfeed the person, the baby, right? And so the baby just keeps keep drinking and drinking, and then after you, you get tired, and they don't stop, by the way. There's no clock that says, like, work, like, eight to five, drink milk. Nighttime, there's no service for you. So in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock, the baby wants to go, guess what? You cannot be plucking him up and go, and no, no more milk for you. Wait till the morning when I wake up. They crave milk all the time because they need milk all the time. And what happened is you had to wake up in the morning at 2 o'clock and, and give them milk and then put them back to sleep. And just when you happen to fall asleep, before you know it, it's like, oh, two and a half hours already. You have no sense of time. And you just keep feeding the baby milk. And this is the picture that Peter has, that you need to have that type of longing for milk. But I wonder, 
How many of us have grown too old? How many of us have grown too old to be that newborn baby? That somehow we think, I don't need the milk. Somehow we think that I can use something else. Somehow we, we forget that the milk that Jesus has given us to us through the word of God is still what I need today to grow. It is still the word of God. It is still living and abiding for me to learn how to love other people. I want to give us three practical things if you want to grow and have that hunger, that craving for the word of God. Here's the first one. If you want to love, if you want to build, if we want to build as a church a culture of love, we must come before the word for, with these two, three things. Here's what the first one. If you want to create a hunger, uh, foster a hunger for the word of God, the first one is this. You need to submit to the authority of the word of God. What I mean by that, you need to actually be convinced that you need the word of God. For many of us, that is not true. I don't mean to offend many of us, but for many of us, that is just not true because we are submitting to authority of other people's advice, self-help books, we're, uh, uh, even our parents' expectation. But we're not submitting to the authority of the very word that saves us. You know that the quote that was quoted by Peter in Isaiah is from Isaiah 40. If you read through Isaiah, you will know Isaiah 40 is a turning point of the letter, of, of the book. From 1 through 39 is a bunch of woes, not W-O-W, okay? It's W-O-E, woe, like cursing on the, on the people of God. But Isaiah 40 is where it starts turning that there is comfort, there's hope. And that hope is tied into the Word of God. And I wonder for many of us, do we actually believe that the Word of God is the only hope that we have? Or do we rely on our own strength, or rely on our friendship, rely on our, 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 um, our own effort in gaining and working? So that's the first thing. You're not going to turn to the Word of God if you don't believe that the Word of God is your authority in life. Here's the second one. That we need to have a steady diet of God's Word. Just like I said, like I said earlier, babies get fed every three hours. It's like clockwork, and literally it is like clockwork. For many of us, we're just not getting enough of a diet of the Word of God. Coming here, listening to the sermon is not enough. I came across a quote uh, by John Piper the other day. It says this, uh, Satan devoted 168 hours, which is 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You multiply that. 168 hours to deceive you. A mere 10 minutes of dabbling in the Word of God is not going to renew your mind. There is an enemy out there trying to steal and influence you and brainwash you. Spending 10 minutes casually reading the Word is not going to be enough to renew your mind. So we need a steady diet of the Word of God. If we want to love other people, we need to first be in this Word first. So what that means practically is if you need to schedule a time, a place, and a plan. If you don't plan on doing it, you're not going to do it. And we all know that. We need to plan on doing it. We need to plan a time, a place to do it, and we need a schedule to do it. I want to encourage you, come consistently to hear preaching of God's word. Hear it preached every week. Read it every day. Study it personally. Study it corporately in your Bible studies. Get into the word of God. Memorize it consistently. We tend to think memory, scripture memory, particularly, let me say a word for those of you who are Awana leaders. Do not. I'll repeat it. Do not expect your kids to memorize when you do not memorize the verses yourself. That is being hypocritical. And we just said, put away all hypocrisy. 
So if you are going to help other people love on the kids, love them by memorizing those verses. And lastly, meditate thoroughly. I've heard someone said it this way too. You might not remember every meal that you're eating. But the reason why you're still alive is because of those unfor- unforgotten, because of those forgettable meals that you had before. Right? You don't remember exactly what you've ate two years ago, but because you keep eating day after day, there is a steady diet of food in your stomach and digestion. Because of that, you are still alive today. So do not mistake it by, by saying, oh, I don't feel it today. You know, when you're hungry, you don't feel to eat. Guess what you do? You eat. Or you get force-fed with an IV in your, in, your, in, in your arm. Because without food, you will die. Here's the last one. Stop eating junk food. Stop settling for junk food. Uh, my, I love, let me preface it by saying, I love my mother, and I also like my mother-in-law. But one of the most challenging things is that oftentimes our, uh, the, our, the grandmothers of my kids will often wonder why do they not eat dinner during dinner time. And I will proceed to ask, did you feed them something to eat before dinner? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, like they ate Oreos, they ate chips. I thought, when did that happen? Like half an hour ago. Uh, but by now they should be hungry. And I'm like, oh, like that's why they're not eating dinner. You gave them junk food to eat right before. Of course they don't have an appetite for it. And I wonder for many of us, are we just settling for junk food? And when we come to the Word of God, eh, it's like going to a buffet. By the way, I'm going to one later on tonight, so I'm thinking about it already. Um, you're thinking about the seafood and the steak, right? It would be foolish if I go to the salad bar and load up on lettuce. It would be foolish of me to go get bread and go, dude, this bread is so good. Let me just keep eating it. Whoa, so good. Let me just keep eating it. By the time I get to the real deal, I'd be like, oh, I can't eat anymore. I think that's the problem for many of us. We are selling for junk food. And I don't mean just junk food as in like videos and things like, like that we know obviously are not good for our soul. What I mean sometimes is we even settle for good things, spiritually good things, meaning articles, sermon, podcasts, Christian books. Those are all great things that will help. Even devotional books, all those are good things, but they are not substitute for getting into the Word of God. Let me put it in a very graphic way. Those are chewed up food that will make it easier for you to digest. Think of a bird. You know what a mother, a, a, a mother bird, I don't know what you call it. What's it called? A mother bird. Does. They chew up the food and spit it back into the baby. You know why? Because they can't digest it. I'm not discouraging to use those things. But all I'm saying is this. Do not settle for the good things and miss on the great things. There is no substitute for us to get into the Word of God and read the Word of God ourselves. I want to share with you as we end the sermon um, uh, a personal experience I had this week. And you might be wondering, oh, how does reading the Word of God help me to love one another more? Uh, to, to be completely honest, not make up just for this sermon. Really, this past week, Hannah can testify. I had a struggle the last few weeks with really loving people. Everything people say, I find it, I'm was cynical about it. Everything people say, I'm like, eh. And it was to the point that I almost felt like, maybe it's better not to have those people. I know what you're thinking, like, is it me? Like, did I talk to Ben this week? Well, that, was that that person that Ben was annoyed at? Uh, don't guess, okay. Um, but I was really struggling with it. 
and and, and it's super convicting when you're struggling with something and then God said, like, preach that word. I'm like, okay, there's not much to preach because I'm not living that myself. But those of us who are in a home group, uh, you're, we have a plan reading through the Bible. Uh, we're reading through, which just happened to be in the major and minor prophets. And every time I open the Word of God in the morning, I'm reading through that. And I'm just reading like, man, these Israelites are so messed up. They're so ungrateful to God. They, like they're deserving to be cursed by God. But in every instance of that, I see God's tender heart to love them back. To receive them, to give them a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. And every time I read that, I'm like, oh, like, God, why, do you, why don't you just cast them out completely and not let them come back? But then it was through those devotional time in the morning that I, I, I realized God had done that for me. Now, I was that person who was consistently rejecting God, consistently rejecting the people of God. You know, I... We started this plan, I, I checked, because on version it has a number of days, 134 days ago. There's no way 134 days ago that I realized today, this week, I'm going to struggle with loving one another. God knows. God knows that I, my struggle, and God has perfect time. So we need to just have a steady diet of God's word, and don't worry about if I'm going to get something out of it. Just make yourself available to the word of God because God will make something out of you through his word if you make yourself available to the word of God. I think so many times we're just like, God, I'm not getting anything out of it. If you just let, stop worrying about reading the Bible, but let the Bible read you. If you come with that open heart, open hands, God will speak to you. And God's going to convict you on the things that you don't even know that you, you need. 134 days ago, I did not know that I'll be struggling this week. But by the word of God, he convicted me. And you know, those most crazy thing is God gave me a verse. Not even part of my Bible reading. It was one of the memory verses that we're supposed to do this week. And it's, and it's blessed my heart because I was reminded that it's not about my love that can love other people. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, I think I have it on the screen or not. It's what it says. By the way, I'm not, I wasn't even reading through Zephaniah. It was just a memory verse that happened to be along with the plane. what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Think about this. When's the last time someone serenaded you? I don't think I even have done that to Hannah. But God reminded me, you know, there is a God that is singing over me. And singing all my we- over my weakness, singing, saving, singing over all my fear, all my anxiety, all the, the shortcomings of my life. He's singing over me because he loves me. And he calls us to love one another in the same way.